Let's exalt his name together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a, what a great opportunity to be in your presence this morning. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you and to praise you and to hear from you and to experience your comfort, your love, your joy, your peace. And so we ask that you will uh, right our ships, that you will uh, take what we're going through in our brokenness and bring healing and wholeness. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We do have one more announcement, and that is you may have seen this in the email and you may have heard about it this morning in ABF. You can definitely get on Church Center and see it, but on May 29th, we are going to have a, uh, a celebration time after the service here at the church celebrating 35 years for Dave. 35 years. <laughs> He hasn't made it to 35 years yet. You, we're almost there. And he didn't start when he was 10. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to... Let's stand together. You are. 
precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. Now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood. that you have given for us. We thank you that while we were hopeless and lost, you came to save us. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. We have the privilege of observing communion now. So again, if you don't have the elements, the cup and the bread, uh, the table is in the back there, the back entryway, and I invite you to take that. It's open to all uh, believers. Everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and we ask that parents would lead the worship time for their children. Communion is summed up in the words of Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. What is it that we remember? Well, we've just sang some great theology that pretty much covered the whole gamut. We remember the death of Christ on the cross, that climax of his earthly ministry, which is also the foundation of our salvation. He died on the cross as a sinless substitute for us, for our sins in our place. And it fulfilled the words of his overarching philosophy of ministry and mission, that is, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So we remember 
the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. We don't just remember this death of some long ago historical uh, figure without recalling that he rose again from the dead, that he was victorious over sin and death and Satan, and that we have assurance of forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith in Christ. And he is present with us today. We don't ever want to take that for granted. Through his promises with us individually through the week, he is always with us, will never leave us, never forsake us, but also in a unique way with our church family, our corporate body. Jesus is present. He is the host of the Lord's Supper at the Lord's table. And so we go to take communion today and we recall not only his death, but the fact that he is risen, that everything that he died and rose for is operative in our lives today by faith. That he not only paid the penalty of sin, but he broke the power of sin so that we can live in righteousness. And one day we look forward to being removed from the presence of sin when we're in his presence. So as we prepare for communion this morning, I invite you to enjoy the presence of Jesus right now. I invite you to talk to him with whatever the, the, the Holy Spirit puts on your heart. It might be tremendous gratitude as you recall his death on the cross or the, the incredible celebration of the fact that he is our risen Lord. It might be a time of confession as the Spirit brings to mind uh, sin in your life. It might be a time of commitment for you. So let's take a couple of minutes to do that. Uh, I'll quote uh, one uh, passage that expresses the supreme manifestation of his love for us, uh, but I invite you just to talk to Jesus, whatever the Spirit brings to you. And that's Romans 5.8. Paul wrote this for us. But God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray.
Dear Jesus, thank you for suffering for our sake. Thank you for walking through rejection and beatings and mockings and scourging and crucifixion that you might take on the horrible nature of sin in our lives and all those that have ever been born and ever will be. We give you thanks for that. Thank you that we, you were able to pay the penalty for our sins. And thank you, Lord. We remember with fresh vitality the celebration of last week of, of your resurrection from the dead. And we give great thanks that you are alive, that you are present with us. And that gives us great joy, great comfort, great security, great strength. And so we come to you today with uh, what you've laid on our hearts, the recognition of your death and resurrection. Uh, we proclaim that and we look forward to your return. We give thanks because of what you have done and the fact that you offer uh, an abundant life by placing our trust in you as our Savior. Thank you for forgiving our sins and entering our lives to lead us. And we ask that you would give us the grace to respond to you with a, a loving obedience each day, each moment, that we might continue to learn more about the sufficiency of your grace in our lives. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to take the elements with me. We're going to pull the tab off of the top wafer and hold that in our hands. <laughs> hey, sweetie. Hold this in our hands and, and listen to the words of Christ as he instituted this ordinance called communion and gave these words to the Apostle Paul. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And if you'll peel the tab off the cup. Again, the words of Jesus, this cup in the new, is the new covenant in my blood. We have that assurance of promised forgiveness. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, again, thank you. And we ask for the grace that our lives would reflect uh, the gratitude and the love that we have for you in return of your love for us that, that you have shown and manifested we pray this in your powerful name. Amen.
We're going to dismiss our Sunshine Kids Club for worship over here. They're going to be ministered to by uh, Rowena McGinty. And um, they are kindergarten through grade five. So if you're a guest with us, feel free to take your children over there and, and uh, meet the staff and, and um, check them in and, and then come on back and join us. And then uh, today's uh, message is going to be brought by Mike McGinty. Uh, his wife, Rowena, is the one that's going to lead our uh, children. Uh, Mike and Rowena uh, have been global missionaries for Conroe Bible Church. And uh, Mike's mother is actually a, uh, was a charter member of Conroe Bible Church. In fact, I think the initial Bible study met in her living room uh, years ago. And so we are very thankful. They have been in Japan as church planters in multiple uh, ministries, and I'm not going to try and do any of that. Mike is going to give a brief report, and then he's going to bring the, the Word of God to us from Ruth chapter 1. Uh, but here's what I can say about them. I have interacted with them for years, and uh, they are teachable, they are available, and they are adaptable in that availability. The Lord has used them in so many different ministries. And even when he would move them to a new location to plant a church or strengthen a church, there was usually a side ministry with that that was equally powerful and important. And, and so I'm very thankful and grateful uh, for them and what God has done in their lives and through them. They communicate well, and that's always a, a privilege for those of us as a church family who partner with them in prayer to know what's going on and how we can pray. So, Mike, we welcome you, and, and we're thankful for your ministry. Good to be with you all this morning. And uh, Dave was telling me earlier in the week, he's been telling people that uh, the— uh, second to expect the second coming of Paul with my being here, and I said you better tell them that they better expect Jonah uh, instead. In fact, he never showed up, so I believe he showed up later on. But I am here. But watching the child run on the stage reminded me of my early days in church planting in Japan, where you're trained to expect anything and everything in the course of a church service. And I well remember one time in our second term in Japan. When we had this big snowfall, we got a lot of snow where we were, and so I got to church before anybody else got there, about an hour and a half, and shoveled snow for an hour and a half, all sweaty by then, going to church, about to start. Our person who's supposed to play the organ didn't show up that morning, so Rowena is pressed into service, and then the person who's supposed to be our MC didn't show up, and I'm pressed into service. And so I'm holding one very wiggly little boy while I'm trying to lead the service and just tired from snow shoveling. And my wife is fighting on the keyboard with songs she hasn't practiced and another one of our little children trying to help her play. And, <laughs> and then she goes, sits back down and some other things went wrong. And I mouth to the words, I can't do this. And she mouthed back to me, you have to. <laughs> Well, that is what ministry is like sometimes, and I could tell you a lot of those ministry stories over the years. But uh, just to briefly summarize our, our ministry, what we're doing now, uh, after 38 years and the mission, we are now back here in America, living in Texas, and, uh, but now we're building upon what we used to do in Japan. Uh, the earlier the uh, adult Sunday school classes got to hear uh, all the gory details of what we've been doing over the years. But let me just briefly tell you what we're doing now. I'm going to tell you through teaching you one Japanese word. Now, you think you may already know this word, but you've been butchering it. 
So you know it is karaoke, okay? Karaoke. How many have done karaoke? Okay. But did you know you were doing karaoke? Okay. Karaoke is a correct pronunciation, like my grandfather used to call Toyotas, Toyotas, and uh, <laughs> Toyotas. And uh, karaoke is actually karaoke. So impress your friends and pronounce it correctly. But let me tell you one rule I learned in karaoke a long time ago. We were in our third term in ministry, and uh, I had the chance as the only foreigner in the town to uh, speak at the Rotary Club for Christmas. They thought it'd be a novel idea to have uh, the local foreigner or the gaijin, they call us, come in for their, uh, their gathering. And so it's a Christmas event, and they had us come in and share what it was like to be a foreigner. And I, I got to tell the story of Christmas. But then they thought it'd be a bright idea when they broke out the karaoke machine to have the foreigner do karaoke. Uh, and so... I, you can't say no in such circumstances, so I was pressed into service, and I'm back there looking at the playlist. And of course, I don't know any of the Japanese songs. There was one song there recognized by Elvis Presley, and it's I Can't Help Falling in Love. So, in front of uh, over 100 people with my family sitting in the audience, pretending not to know me, crawling <laughs> under the table, I got up there and sang my, did my best Elvis impersonation, impersonation and saying, I can't help falling in love, dedicating it to my wife, who I don't know if she heard any of it because she was hiding under the table. <laughs> and then I came back after it was over with, and uh, those poor people didn't know what they'd gotten into. And my, my family finally came up from the table again. And I learned a very important lesson that day about karaoke, is you don't hand the microphone to everybody. Now, they made the mistake of giving it to me that day, and that was my one and only karaoke mass public experience, so to speak. But I learned back then that you don't give the microphone to everybody. That doesn't mean that uh, those people aren't good in, in other areas, but as far as singing skills, uh, performance, musical skills, you may not want to give them a microphone. And that is now the ministry that uh, Rumuina and I are involved in and handing over the microphone to others going to Japan that we are privileged to use all our years of experience in Japan to mobilizing people to go and serve there, people who uh, are being called by God to go to Japan, and to mentoring them, training them, and just speaking into their lives and helping them whatever we can. And so it's a real privilege to use all our years of experience to bless the next generation going to Japan. I now have 39 people who are in various stages of getting to Japan, and much more, many more waiting in the wings. God seems to be raising up an actual spiritual army to go and serve in Japan, and we're privileged to be a part of preparing the next generation to go to serve there. Uh, one uh, couple we know there very well is my son and his wife, and three of our grandkids are now in the city of Yokohama serving there, uh, God's purposes. So that is kind of how what we're doing in our twilight years of ministry is we continue to want to serve God's purposes, not just to this generation, but to the next generation of those who will go and lay down their lives for Jesus in Japan so that others may know him. Well, let me pray as we get ready to open up the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your care for us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you guide us. Thank you that we had the opportunity to sing this morning of your praises and to remember your death on the cross, who gives, for you remember your son who died for us and gave us new life and made us new creatures. Father, we pray for your blessing on our time as you open your word, that you would speak to us, and that you would 
Help us to learn what we need to know for today and deepening our walk with you to serve your purposes in this generation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So when we went to Japan, our first task in 1984 was to learn Japanese. Now, coming from Texas, obviously I didn't speak much Japanese, uh, or speak any Japanese for that matter. And uh, so we went to language school, and now our new workers go to language school. Uh, it's two years and five months language study. Japanese is one of the hardest languages in the world to learn. I hate getting asked the question, uh, is the PowerPoint coming on? I hate getting asked the question, uh, are you fluent in Japanese? And I say, well, I preach in it every Sunday and use it all the time, but it's kind of one of these situations, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And so when we first arrived in Japan, you learn the basic words like water, which is mizu. You learn how much, ikura desu ka, or where's the bathroom, otorai, doko desu ka. And you learn those sayings, and bit by bit, you kind of increase your vocabulary and ability to function in society there. But then after six months of being there, we got our first car. And so then I learned I have to master some new vocabulary because now I'm a, a vehicle owner and I have to be able to communicate certain things about it, particularly when you pull up in the gas station. So the first phrase we learned in Japanese related to the car, you pull up in the gas station was, mantan ni shite kudasai, which means fill it up, please. Now you have to remember that uh, gas stations in Japan are different gas stations in America. Gas stations, and by that time, were mostly self-service. <clears throat> there was no one to talk to when you pulled up there. You do it yourself, which we did not have in Japan. You pull up in Japan, you have about three or four gas station attendants, and they're nice uniforms and white gloves, bowing to you to greet you as you pull into the gas station. It's great. And they, they take your trash out. They wipe your windshield. They, they, they check the oil, just like we used to do here a long, long time ago. And, uh, and then people here may get, you know, $10 for the gas, $20 of gas, $30 of the gas. In Japan, you always got your vehicle filled up. And so that's why I had to learn the phrase, mantan ni shite kudasai. Okay, repeat after me, mantan ni shite kudasai. All right, the next time you drive in Japan, you're good to go. But the thing is, we don't want just our vehicles full of gas. We want other things filled up in our lives. One of the things that annoy me about Japan, I love many things about Japan, you go to a movie theater and you get a Coke, it's always two-thirds full. It's like they have this invisible line and they always just put two-thirds in it. And so we want them to fill up my Coke, please. You know, fill it up to the top is what I want. Or if you get a pepperoni pizza, I want that baby to be full of pepperonis. I don't want just a few pepperonis scattered here and there. I want it to be full of pepperonis. I, at Christmas time, I want the presents under the tree. I want it to be full for me, you know. Yeah, my grandkids get their share and my children, but you know, I want my share of the presents there as well. Or I want a full bank account. I want a full salary. I want a full pension plan. I want my children's esteem to be full. That seems to be a very high value these days. Or I like for my kids to have full grades, for us to have full health, to have a full church, to have a full family, a full marriage, you know, a life full of friends. We want the tanks of our lives to always be full. Nothing wrong with that. We like to be comfortable. We want things to go our way. Just coming here this morning, talking to my daughter in North Carolina, some things going wrong in her life, and I wish 
man, I wish I could fill her tank today, and I can't. And that is kind of the situation in life. We want our tanks in life to always be full, and subconsciously we come up to God and say, Mantan needs to take it aside. Fill it up. Make me happy. Give me what I want. Fill my tank. And sadly, some churches, some pastors teach this. We call it the prosperity gospel. You can turn on the TV anytime and watch pastors promising all kinds of things. If you just come to God and ask for this and that, God is going to fill your tank up immediately for you. That is what God is in the business of doing, of making you happy and giving you whatever you want. Of course, we know that is not what the scriptures teach. You just pull up into the gas station. But real life indicates otherwise. We're living now in, I hope, a post-COVID world. We're getting there bit by bit. But for two years, our lives have been dramatically affected by this invisible uh, germ or bacteria that was, was invading our lives and changing our lifestyles in many ways and impacting us adversely in countless ways. Or maybe inflation. Now you pull into the gas station, you're having to pay a lot more than you used to. And that is a visible uh, evidence that things have changed. Or maybe this war that it was happening far away in the other part of the world is coming more and more real to us in what's happening in Ukraine. Or maybe the general decay of morals you see and hear about every day where it seems like our society is on a downward spiral. And so it seems like tanks and our lives are tracking towards empty and not full. Well, this natural preoccupation with my tank uh, wants us to uh, can serve as a distraction from what God is calling us to do and what he calls us to be. God wants us to focus on him, and he wants us to focus on others and not just what is happening in our lives. And so this ability to refuse to focus on just my tank is a very difficult thing. So in order to help us understand what that looks like and understand the consequences of that, I want to look at the story of two women who learn from their empty tanks. You know them as Ruth and Naomi. And their story is contained in the book of Ruth. Let me ask you a question quickly. How many of you have ever run out of gas? You ever run out of gas? No one here? Yeah, it's mainly the men. I don't see hardly any women with a raise in our hands. And there's a reason for that. Okay, we got one uh, honest person up here. <laughs> mainly the guys run out of gas. Yeah, okay, we got another one. Another, okay, the Holy Spirit speaking here, right? conscience coming. Uh, but it's usually the guys who do it. We tend to press things a little bit too much. And uh, these days you get so many warnings about it. Uh, you're not supposed to run out of gas. But when you run out of gas, that feeling is frustration, anger, embarrassment, disappointment. All kinds of feelings come to bubble to the surface when you run out of gas. So we're going to look at the story of a woman whose tank had run out of gas. Her story is contained in the book of Ruth. And I want to read just uh, verses 1 through 5 here to get us started this morning. So if you have your Bibles, after the book of Judges is the book of Ruth before the book of 1 Samuel, and read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 to start out. <clears throat> in those days, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a man from Bethlehem and Judah left the country because of a severe famine. He took his wife and two sons and went to live in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. 
They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. During their stay in Moab, Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpha, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilian died. Lys left Naomi alone without husband or sons. So what I want to do first <clears throat> to dive into the story today is look into the reality <clears throat> of these two women's tanks and look at the setting there. What information is telling us, what is told to us about these tanks? First element in the setting is the time element. It says in verse 1 that in those days when the judges ruled. So we know that the, this story is happening in the background of the book of Judges. And uh, it's a book that happens right before that. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, it's kind of like a Stephen King novel, or a bunch of them. It's a days of great faithlessness. It's a great of idolatry, terrible sins. Judges chapter 2, verses 16 to 20, summarizes this time period. And it is one of the most difficult books in the Bible to read because of all the horrible things going on and the foolish mistakes made by the people of God. And we see as a result of their sinfulness, God punished them time and time again, sometimes through a famine, sometimes through disease, sometimes it's through enemies. And God punished them trying to get their attention to bring them back to himself. And when they repented, God showed them mercy time and time again. So God sent to them judges or deliverers to bring victory and administer justice. There's only book in the Bible where you hear the term judges. And they also means deliver. People that came, especially sent from God, <clears throat> to help them out. And you see this whole cycle of sin repeating itself, or this cycle repeating itself throughout the book of Judges, where, first of all, they sin. God's people sin. They then uh, are punished for their sins. And then they repent. And then eventually God delivers them. And the book of Genesis, uh, Judges ends in a kind of a negative note Chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. That was the story of Judges, the theme of that time period in Israel's history where everyone did as they saw fit. Now, can you imagine a company where everyone did as they saw fit? The employees, the bosses, the secretary, everyone did as they saw fit. The chaos would be there. Can you imagine a school where the students and the teachers and the administration, everyone did what they wanted to as they saw fit. That is a recipe for disaster. Can you imagine a family where the children or the parents and grandparents, grandkids, everyone does as they saw fit? That would be a, a not a very great place to be. Or a church where everyone did as they saw fit. This is not a scenario that you want to live in, but this is what is going on in the story of Ruth and the story of Naomi, that they were living in this time period where Israel's tank went from full to empty and then back to full and then back to empty many times, and people lived in disobedience, and God punished them, they repented, and then he raised up a judge to help them. So there is a moral rot going on in our culture that we complain about at times, but it is nothing compared to what was going on in the days of the judges where God's people committed many, many foolish acts, repeatedly fell away from him, and God repeatedly had mercy on them. So this is the backdrop. That is the time setting for the story. 
But another element to this story or to the, to the setting is the place in which it took, uh, where these things occurred. <clears throat> we are told is in the town of Bethlehem. Now that should ring a few bells for us. Every Christmas we celebrate Bethlehem, a small village in Judah. And this was singled out as a place of Naomi's inheritance. It was a place of promise for them. But those promises at that time seemed empty to this woman. Why did they seem empty? Well, Bethlehem means literally house of bread. It was a place where God was supposed to feed his people. But that seemed to be an empty meaning uh, as we understand the circumstances which go on in the story. There's no bread to be found there. We're told it's a time of famine. Bethlehem known as a house of bread, but there is no bread there. And so this causes, this launches Naomi's uh, responses and launches many things that will there for our benefit as we dig into this passage. But what about the circumstances of this? You know, have the, the circumstances to tell a little bit more about the setting here. So let's look first at Naomi's tank. <clears throat> what do we know about Naomi? What is told to us about her circumstances here? Well, we're told, first of all, that there's a famine going on the land. So obviously, they're in the punishment phase of this cycle in the days of the judges. God was punishing them for their sins. And so then we're told that she moved to Moab, the land of enemies, the Moabites, the land of evil. It was not the land of promise, but things were so desperate in Israel that uh, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, decided to move to Moab. And there she arrives, instead of problems being solved, getting her tank filled, her husband dies. So the needle on the gas gauge is pointing to empty. So she becomes a widow, unprotected in Middle Eastern culture, which is a horrible place to be. But then her sons marry, her two sons marry. It looks like the needle's going to go the opposite way on the gas gauge. Things are picking up. But then we're told immediately afterwards that her sons die. So she has no present. She has no future help. Her tank is back on empty again. And then we realize there's two more widows added to this picture as well. More mouths to feed. So she is running on fumes by now. So this leads us to an important question, and that is, how do we measure our tanks? How do we measure our tanks? Now, I'm just tossing the question out here now. I'm not going to make any attempt to answer it just yet. I want the story to kind of answer this question for us and just throw it out there as a bit of a teaser now. Is how do we measure our tanks? So I want to move on from Naomi's tank and talk a little bit about Ruth's tank. We know the circumstances of Naomi. It's not good. But what about Ruth, her daughter-in-law? What do things look like for her? And sometimes Ruth's tank is overlooked in the story. We know that she was living in the midst of a famine, just like Naomi. Her husband has died as well. She has no children. She's poor, and she's separated from her family. So Ruth's tank is empty as well. And Ruth becomes the focus of the story in chapters 2 to 4. Many of you know it very well. I've read it many times. And if you don't, haven't read it before, I encourage you afterwards to read it, to find out the details. But the story moves away from Naomi in chapter 1 to Ruth in chapters 2 to 4. And the important thing that starts to develop here is that the perception these ladies have of their tanks is a critical element to understanding what God wants to teach us here. Not just what's in their tanks, not just what's happening in their lives, but how do they respond to what is or is not in their tanks is an important thing we need to understand. Now, we all have our out-of-gas stories, and I've, I confess I have about three of them in my life. 
and none of them were pretty. But I want to tell you about one experience out of gas story I experienced in our second term in Japan. Back then as missionaries, we only got paid every three months, once a quarter. We got paid in cash. That's the way it was done. Don't ask me why. Uh, but we got our money at the beginning of the quarter, and you had to be careful. That was going to stretch you for three months. Well, we got to one particular quarter when finances were tight. We didn't get much because our support was low, also because the yen-dollar exchange rate was very bad at that time, which affected our support. So what we got to start at the quarter was not going to stretch far. We were just a couple weeks into the quarter, and I realized, you know, we have to really cut back here and just save money for food and nothing else. So that meant whatever gas was in the car was all the gas was going to be put in that car for the rest of that time. So I tried to be careful with it. Didn't drive any more than absolutely necessary, <clears throat> but eventually, a few weeks and a quarter, no more gas. So I parked the car in front of the house, and there it remained as kind of a decoration for our house and in front of our house for a couple of months. And uh, no one knew about it. You know, they thought, oh, let me get these vans sitting here. They haven't moved it in a while. And uh, they weren't moving it because they had no gas in it. And all I wanted was a literal full tank of gas. I was frustrated, a little bit angry that we're in this situation, worried how are we going to get through this quarter. <clears throat> but I realized in that process, and of course many times after that, there, there are many tanks in our lives that we are desperate to fill, some much, much more harder than a tank full of gas. On a national level, we look at the polarity going on in the U.S. right now with People, so much vitriol out there. You see it in social media. You see it in politics. You see it in our government where there's just people turned against others. And you're like, what happened to the America we knew? And uh, or maybe you sense in the loss of freedoms. And you feel like you have an empty tank there. Or when you pull into the gas station now and it's literally twice the price it was before and you realize how inflation is hitting you and some of you are having a hard time making your finances stretch to what you need or threats of war from a place in the world that maybe a few of you have been to, but many of us have never frequented, but it seems very close to us now. So we sense this emptiness or empty tanks on a national level, but we also sense it on a personal level. Maybe you're unemployed now and you're looking for a job and not finding one that suits your skills and abilities. Or maybe you experience a broken in your, fam your broken family now, husband and wife or children or other relationships where things are just sunk into disrepair or maybe cancer or some other disease has reared its head in your family and you're dealing with an empty take in that regard. And no solutions in sight and empty tanks come in many different forms that can pull us down and weigh us down. And the reality is there are lots of empty tanks that go unfilled. So the question is, how do we react to our inevitable empty tanks? And in the process, do we even see the empty tanks of others? Those who are across the street, much less those around the world, which is the heartbeat of missions and understanding there are people, there are nations, there are people groups out there with empty tanks, not just physically, but spiritually. Well, we had the privilege to live among a broken people for two years in Iwate when we did relief work after the great earthquake and tsunami in 2011. And it just last month uh, marked the 11-year anniversary. 
And we realized that it was not just a place that was devastated physically by, by an earthquake and a tsunami that came in the height of uh, 50 yards in height and places. But it was very dark spiritually, one of the darkest places in Japan. And while ministering there to a broken people, we realized they were broken far more than, uh, spiritually than they were physically and materially. And we thought back times here in the lives we had in America, the privilege we have our churches are everywhere. Christian radio, you can turn on very easily. Uh, extra Bibles in your house, you know, of different versions uh, of the Bible. Christian friends you can have fellowship with. Even Christian celebrities here, like the guy who won the, recently won the Masters Golf Tournament, talking about, you know, praising God and God being the purpose, focal point of his life. It's everywhere here, but it was not there at all where we ministered to this broken people who continued to remain broken in that dark corner of Japan. But we know the reality of Naomi and Ruth's tanks. But how did they respond? Not just what's in their tanks, how did they view those tanks? And here's where we see a departure of the ways for the two ladies and how they view these things. What was their perception? What was, how was their gas gauge registering for these two ladies? So I'd like to continue reading verses 6 through uh, uh, 21 in chapter 1 here, starting at verse 6. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters, daughter-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughter-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. <clears throat> but on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes instead of coming with me. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. <clears throat> but Naomi replied, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has caused me to suffer. And again they wept together, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth insisted on staying with Naomi. See, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. I will go wherever you go and live wherever you live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. I will die where you die and will be buried there. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. So when Naomi saw that Ruth had made up her mind to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was stirred by their arrival. Is it really Naomi, the women asked? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why should you call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such a tragedy? How do these ladies see their tanks? What do their gas gauges look like? Naomi's gas gauge, as you already learned, measures empty. So Naomi says, I feel empty, 
Therefore, I am empty. And this is testified immediately in her actions. What does she do? She sets off to return to Israel. And why does she go to Israel? She's heard that the famine has ended there. So obviously, and good crops are there. So we're hitting, hitting a different point in that cycle in Israel. The cycle has changed from punishment to blessing. It has come to the attention of Naomi. And in order to fill her tank back up again, she's going to move back to Israel. So that's her first action she does. Then her second course of action is encourage her daughter-in-laws to return home. She can't care for them. She's just a widow. She has no husband anymore. She has no sons. She can't fill their tanks. So they must find someone else to fill their tanks. They are on their own. And it's natural to focus on our own tanks when we get into such circumstances in life. When the pains and problems overwhelm us, to take care of our own needs. And this is seen in her attitude. And then we start seeing things creep into how she perceives her tank that are not so good. She says in verse 13, the Lord has caused me to suffer. She thinks God is against her based upon the contents of her tank. And so this is where her view of God, her theology starts to drift and she starts getting separated from the purposes of God in her life. So far that she becomes bitter. She says to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Tremendous significance in that. Naomi means pleasant. She once had the reputation of being a pleasant person, but Mara means bitter one, bitterness. She said, I went away full and returned empty. She's already distorting her history. When she left Israel, she was not full. They left Israel because there was a famine there and their tank was empty. But she's so bitter now that she thinks she was full when she left because things had gone from bad to worse. So a change in circumstances produced a change in her attitude. Now, this is a natural struggle. We are tempted to evaluate life and God based upon the contents of my tank. This is where we normally are. This is our natural inclination. How does God feel about me? How are things going in life based upon the things that are bringing me happiness or fulfillment? But what about Ruth? Ruth has very similar circumstances to Naomi, but her gas gauge measures things differently. Naomi says, I feel empty, therefore I am empty. Ruth says, I feel empty, but I will trust God anyway. My tank is empty just like Naomi's, but I'm going to trust God regardless of what is going on. You see this in her actions, where she doesn't go home. She doesn't return to the natural place to get her tank full. Instead, she stays with Naomi who can offer her nothing in a physical sense. She's a widow without any resources in her life. So she chooses to go with Naomi. And you see this reflected in her attitude. In verse 16, one of the most powerful statements in Scripture, where Naomi responds this way to, I mean, Ruth responds this way to Naomi. She said, I will go wherever you go and live wherever you live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She is, chooses to go with Naomi, even though there's just a cloud of uncertainty over that and how she will get her tank full again. And this is where we learn a very important lesson, and that is our perception of our tanks is far more important than the contents. The perception of our tanks is more important than the contents. It is difficult to rise above our circumstances and pain to resist bitterness and selfishness 
particularly we live in a news-dominated society where everything is negative, all the things going wrong in our nation, all the things going wrong with our politicians, all the things going wrong in our neighborhoods. That is a mentality we can pick up where it just seems like we're constantly being bombarded with news of our empty tanks around the nation, around the world, in our own personal lives. It's hard to rise above that. But we've got to get to the point, and God is bringing these ladies to the point, we realize we cannot fill our own tanks. So we must trust the God who alone can fill them because he created them. One movie that I really enjoyed years ago was Forrest Gump. And, uh, and maybe you, I went to Bubba Gump Shrimp in Kima the other day and reminded about this. And uh, it's a story of a man, a very simple man who has all these unusual things happen in his life and uh, what's going on there. And he just happens to be in the right place at the right time, and all these cool things happen to him, some sad things as well. But at the beginning of the story, it shows this feather being floated in the wind, carried around everywhere. And then he sits on the bench, and the movie's ending, and here comes that feather again, being floating around, carrying around, and you went, what's this white feather about? And then I realized, thinking about it more, it's about the message of the film. The message of the film says we are victims of fate. Whatever happens in our life, both good and bad, it's just what happens. But that is not the message of the Scriptures. We well know the passage, Romans eight twenty eight, where it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That is a story of Ruth, who is called by God's purposes to serve him. And we realize that our lives are not empty. Our lives are not aimless, controlled by faith. And for us to perceive our tanks correctly, we must return to the God who created our tanks and trust him. So this is where the story evolves to the most important point. And we realize that God is in control of our tanks. God is our gas station is one way of putting it. And that's summarized in the last verse of the chapter, verse 22. It says, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, we're told. Something that seems almost insignificant there, but very important. Because we're realizing that God has power over their circumstances. Verse 6 tells us that God had blessed his people and was giving them good crops. These good crops are not happening because they were working hard and good weather. God was intervening in the affairs of this nation to bless them again. And in verse 22, it's hinted at again. So they arrived in Bethlehem. Remember the house of bread? They arrived at Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. God was going to provide them. And God controls the faucets of our lives, controlling the contents and flow in order to get our attention, as he always does. This is seen immediately in the next chapter when a new character is introduced by the name of Boaz. He is called a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer is a person who pays the debt of a relative and he is that they're unable to pay. It may be a financial debt. It may be freeing them from slavery. It may be providing an heir. So this man named Boaz, who's a relative of Naomi, he allows them to glean in their fields, allows Naomi to glean in his fields, to go after his labors, to receive generously. And he gives to them, and he starts to provide for them. And he gets to the point where he's willing to become their formal kinsman redeemer, despite the risk to himself. And he marries Ruth, a foreigner. He preserves the name and property of her dead husband. He takes care of Naomi, and she changes back to Naomi pleasant from Mata, who is bitter. And Bethlehem becomes the house of bread for Naomi and Ruth. 
for God provides for them. But the story of the book of Ruth takes on much greater dimensions here. This is not just a story of two widows. If that's all you think it's about, you miss the point entirely. It's nothing much greater going on. It's a story of God's care for a lost world full of people with empty tanks. Because the author of the book of Ruth goes on to tell us that Ruth and Ro, uh, uh, Boaz and Ruth, when they got married, they had a child, and his name was Obed. Okay, interesting name, odd name, big deal. But then we're told that Obed's son is Jesse. Okay, maybe the light's starting to come on. We've heard that name before. Jesse was the father of King David. So from the line of King David, God gives the ultimate kinsman redeemer, who we know is Jesus. Very powerful story going on here. And we learn that God is a God who cares and controls. So Bethlehem becomes the house of bread. It becomes a place where God literally feeds two women through Boaz. And it becomes a place where God feeds a hungry nation through King David to his birthplace, who reigned a hundred years later, the greatest king in Israel's history, a man known as a person after God's own heart. And then God feeds an empty world through his only son, where Jesus was born a thousand years later. Some pretty important things happened in that little town of Bethlehem. And we realize that God is a God who cares and controls. God is a global God who calls us to have a global vision. And there's a mega narrative going on in this seems what a little local story about two women seems almost insignificant, but God is teaching us something much greater here, how he views the world and how he wants us to view the world as well as we walk in our lives trusting him. And we need to cling to this truth when our tanks feel empty. We need to care for others and see their empty tanks. People want to know that we care. And when we know that we care, then they will listen to the message of the good news and be drawn to God. This is the story of Naomi and Ruth. So the question I come back to again is, where's your gas gauge? not where the contents of your tank are. We all have our empty tank story today, I'm sure. I'd like to take the time and listen to them all, pray with you, hear you. I'm sure Dave knows a lot of them. You know each other's tank stories a lot. A lot of us are running on empty right now. But I encourage you, if your tank is empty, to go to the house of bread. Only God can feed you. Only God can feed you. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he will feed us in ways we did not expect, provide for us in ways we did not expect, guide us in ways we did not expect. And just as Jesus spoke to that woman in John 4 on the way through Samaria, he told her, I am the living water. And she says, give me this water. I'm thirsty. I never want to come here again. And Jesus is the one who fills us and feeds us in ways we do not understand at times when we're hurting. And the God who takes care of helpless widows in a lost nation, in a lost world, cares deeply about you. You can never fill your own tank. And a sign of God's filling is that you will care for others. And like Ruth and Boaz, you will choose not to focus on your own tank. Instead of being self-centered, you'll be God-centered and other-centered. A full tank loves God and loves others. I remember as a young boy going to my grandparents' farm. They had 300 acres in Hempstead, Texas, and there they had uh, 
It was fun being there. It was a great place to grow up as a kid, hunting and fishing, exploring. But the not so great part about it was the mowing the pastures. And uh, he had a lot of acres to, to, to mow there. And he had three tractors. And two of them were forged, I remember. One was a, a John Deere. And, uh, and so every year in the summertime, we had to mow the uh, fields. And uh, it was, took about two weeks to mow the mow. And guess what? Being the youngest one, the most irresponsible one, I got the crummiest tractor. And one thing I remember about that tractor is the, the fuel gauge is broken. And the only way you could know how much is in it, you took off the, the cap on the gas tank. Could you go onto the tractor picture there? You take off the gas cap and uh, stick a stick in there, a clean stick, of course, and pull it out and you say, oh, that's how much gas I got. And that's the only way we knew how much gas was in there. And so we're driving around day after day for a couple of weeks to do all this in the hot Texas sun. And I didn't know if my gas gauge, my gas was full, or gas tank was full or empty, but I knew how I felt. I hated that. You know, I wanted to be there with my friends playing games. I want to be in the air conditioning watching I Love Lucy. You know, I want to be drinking my cold Dr. Pepper. But instead, I'm circling around time after time and time again, the heat, the sweat pouring down my back, the dust in my face, grasshoppers hitting me time and time again. It was monotonous. It was boring and just did that for hours on end. And I didn't know if my tank was full or empty, and I didn't care. Focus was on me. But perhaps, like Naomi, you're in great pain and tempted to become bitter. And like Naomi, you may be riding around with a full tank and not even know it. This woman had no idea the way God was going to bless her. She had no idea the way God was going to use her, not just to fill her own tank, but to fill the tank of the nation, to fill the tanks of the world, and he was going to bless her in amazing ways, and she just had to respond in faith. So the story of Ruth and Naomi is, trust God, not your tank. Go to him and say, fill it up, please. But fill it up with what you want to fill it up with, not what I want. It's not about me. God is in the process of filling all our tanks in sovereign, unique ways to accomplish his purposes in this world. And he calls us to serve those purposes, whether it's here in your neighborhood, whether it's in your school, your workplace, or around the world, God wants you to focus on the tanks of others. And as one who is filled by God, you will see the empty tanks of others, and God will use you as a blessing to others in ways you never imagined. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are Lord of our tanks. Whatever may be in them or not be in them at this point, whatever we are personally desiring to see filled in our life, problems solved, solutions provided, that, Lord, we will be able to lay them at your feet again. And that you will provide not just what we need, but you will provide what this world needs. We thank you for providing a Savior, a kinsman redeemer, who came to save us from our sins, and that we would be his ambassadors, that we would serve your purposes, and we would trust you with the contents of our tanks, and we would follow you wholeheartedly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?
this morning. Have a good week.